testify. I swear on the melody of trumpet vines, ants feasting through animal crackers, Burt's Bees, Tyler Perry movies, my daddy's 38 slug, footy socks inside high-top Jordans, disidentification, drag queens, blonde dreadlocks, headstones, salt and pepper in your grass, vanilla wafers and banana pudding, Zeus swan chasing, blunt guts, sharp thumbnails, keloid scars, cash-only bars, R&B songs on what the pot called to kettle. I put that on my mama's good hair. I'm playing solitaire with a fan and limb. The white woman I go home to. My auntie's face when she says, you know, he always loved those pink toes. I put that on everything. The signifiers I gobble up. Candlesticks blown out by whistling lips. I put that on records scratched on down beats. Empty beehives. Fresh fade head slaps. Hand claps. Bamboo shoots. Liminality. Mestizos. That purple black crook of my arm. Split sternum on you can't save him now i put that on skinny jeans get rich schemes gotta get that cream know what i mean freckled black faces leafless trees throwing up gang signs phlegm hocked onto the streets i swear i catch more stones than catfish i lose more collard greens than sleep i think nothing is here but us darkies high yellows red bones and cocoa butters someone no everyone has jungle fever don't touch my bowhead blonde as moonshine mute Trambone choking. I post that on Instagram. Post me to the endless chain of signifiers. Strawberry gashes on kneecaps. Let me get some dap. Newports, cools, and folding chairs instead of bar stools. That white drool caked on your face. Mommy, please wipe away the veil. I thought I was passing into the eye of the street lamp. I swear. I promise on frondless palm trees. Long pinky nails. Sixteen years serve eight. And Miss Addie's red beans and rice. Old dirty bastard and a brother on the cream of wheat box. It don't mean a thing if it don't buckle your knees. Open your hands, I'll give you a song. Give you the Holy Ghost from the preacher's greasy palm. When he hit me, I didn't fall. Felt eyes jabbing me and tagging me. Oh no, he didn't. Give you the arm from the small of her back. I put that on double consciousness, multiple jeopardy, and performativity. Please make sure my feathers and manacles are tight. Yeah, baby, I like bottomless bullet chambers. I swear on the creation of Uncle Tom, some white woman's gospel. She got blue eyes, you know I love me some. On Josiah Henson, the real Uncle Tom. On us still believing in Uncle Tom. Lord have mercy. I put that on a black man standing on my shoulders holding his balls. I put that on a black man I am. I am not. On the black man I wish I was. From the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, Pacifica Radio, welcome to Poets Cafe. Douglas Manuel is a Milton and Dornsai Fellow at the University of Southern California, where he is pursuing a Ph.D. in literature and creative writing. He has served as the poetry editor for Goldline Press, as well as one of the managing editors of Ricochet Editions. His poems are featured on Poetry Foundation's website and have appeared or are forthcoming in Poetry Northwest, the L.A. Review, Rhino, North American Review, Crab Creek Review, and elsewhere. His first full-length collection of poems, Testify, was recently released by Red Hen Press. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. We're so happy to have you here. 
your book, Testify, really got me looking in a lot of different directions. It's really such an interesting combination of conflicts and religion versus non-religion or non-belief, responsibility, neglect, black, white, culture, culture versus culture. And I was thinking in particular, because this is sort of a melting pot of so much in this opening poem, Testify, uh, which the whole book is really a, t- a testimony in, in its way. I started thinking about Josiah Henson. Oh, yeah. The story of Josiah Henson, Uncle Tom was based on him as a character. It was based on a true hero. He escaped a county, started a settlement for former slaves who fled from the U.S., and and I wonder, how do we view the past in the context? Do we look to this guy as somebody who had a life of integrity and honor? Or is his name forever stigmatized because of the way, in theater, for example, they took his place and they changed this character into a sort of subservient, disparaging... <laughs> no, say the least. Yeah. <laughs> That's all 100% true, and I think this poem, in a way, is me trying to reclaim not only him and give him agency in his own kind of self-determination, as well as kind of reclaim the even term Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. For a long time, I attempted to write a poem called, like, Collect Confessions of an Uncle Tom. I think it's one of the many burdens that I wear of not feeling black enough. I think authenticity means so much, like, to turn a phrase to keep it real happens so often in the black community, and... One of those things, you know, kind of the worst thing that you can level against somebody is one, at least from around the way where I'm from, is to call them Uncle Tom. And so to kind of do the little research and see, you know, where this whole kind of idea of Uncle Tom came from, from, you know, the notion of that great novel and to the kind of the way that we've used it in a contemporary context. It's something that I wear and that I buck against. I worry about not being the kind of black man that is part of the narrative of the early 90s coming-of-age multiculturalism movements of the strong black man who's so pro-black, you know, who uh, ain't going to take no stuff from no white man, no cops, no nobody. And that kind of racial imagination, like, so many ways I fall below that kind of standard of black maleness, which uh, many of my mentors from pop culture and in my family, like, adhere to so much. So in a lot of ways, the titular poem is dealing with that, and I think that's kind of the whole book's agenda. Agenda is trying to carve out and speak for a space of blackness that maybe not aligns with all the kind of received notions, at least what I received. Mm-hmm. Like my notions of the kind of black male that I exist has is legible and does exist. But as far as what I was shown growing up, there wasn't that many exemplars of how to be that kind mm-hmm. of black man. So I found myself more aligning myself with people who, like my family, and kind of the conversations around would be looking down upon saying, X, Y, Z person, you know, he Uncle Tom, he think he's mm-hmm. white, you know, he talk proper, he forget where he from, uh, all these kind of ideas. And, you know, being a Catholic school kid and having um, a lot of white friends, my godparents played integral role in my upbringing. All those kind of narratives all kind of have their nexus in me. And so it made me very conflicted growing up about which way to go. The Midwest is so binary with race, at least at the time when I was growing up, that it felt like they're like, you're black or you're white, and that was it. So it's just me searching for another way to be, I guess, and problematizing all of the ways I've shown to be. And not only speaking to your weight or responsibility as a black man in society, but also thinking about 
how you can be pigeonholed by your own culture mm -hmm. and stereotyped by your own culture mm -hmm. to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. I think all cultures are guilty of that mm -hmm. to some extent and how we're hindered mm -hmm. from embracing other aspects. It's almost like the other voices that are in us, and we all have them, right. are uh, muted because of identity, because of a, a fear of losing identity. Mm -hmm. But I know that's not the only part of it. I know that because the black community has been oppressed for so long, there's also the need and the continual need to stand in that space of being present for one's own race or one's own legacy. And therein lies the guilt, right? There right. lies my, my heavy laden guilt because, I mean, I know that people lost their lives from the Mississippi River to the Atlantic Ocean in the Middle Passage. People lost their lives for me to be able to kind of live the life that I live and speak and write the way I want to write and to feel as though that my lifestyle or anything that I do um, disrespects those kind of notions is something that I wear with me, similar to my Catholic guilt from my Catholic upbringing. Morally, I think my race guilt from the Afrocentristic notions I receive from family members and pop culture during my maturation process, I think, are just my obsessions. You know, they say writers return over and over again to the obsessions, and I would definitely say my mom's passing, my relationship with my father, my relationship to the black man that I wish I was, as I say in this poem, versus the black man that I am, and my relationship toward what's sacred, I think, are the obsessions of Testify and continue to be my obsessions to this and day. And speak to it so eloquently, mm -hmm. I think, embracing all of those aspects. I'd like to get in our next poem that talks about your dad. If you're just tuning in, this is host Lois P. Jones. I'm here with our guest, Douglas Manuel, and we're talking about his new book out on Red Hen Press, a fabulous collection called Testify. Do you want to talk about this poem or you just want to read it? I guess all you need to know for this is my uh, father's on um, dialysis. So that's quite the process. It's one of those things that I intellectually understood, but actually see it happening is quite the ordeal. I think all people understand that, you know, it's taking the blood out of the body and cleaning it and then returning it. But it's just quite the thing to see all the tubes and how one looks when... That process is happening right. to them. It's a, it's a lot. And that coupled with the relationship I have with my father, he's in prison a lot of my life, and I was raised by other family members. So it's always been complicated. So this is me kind of reckoning with all that. And I think that's all you need to know with uh, this poem. It's entitled, The First Time I See My Father's Blood Cleaned. Fried chicken and cigarettes in my backpack. I stand at the door, unable to cross the threshold. As if that hospital floor is ice, too thin to bear any weight. I hear your younger self caught beneath, knocking your fist against the brittle cold, not strong enough to break through. Your gray-black skin, a city at night, still. I'm at the door with the greasy chicken and smokes you asked for, watching you bleed. Blood rushing through tubes so fast it seems not to move. Artificial kidney does the work yours won't. You don't see me. You shiver between death and sleep. I place my bag down and try to give you my time. The thing you wouldn't ask for and didn't need 
what I've been longing to give. Such a beautiful poem of presence and the struggle. I think when you read all of the poems, you start to see the poet who has all these identities and has these relationships, and specifically with your mom and your dad, and that conversation and that dialectic. There's always this opposing side, one that's the loving son toward the father and the bond, and the other side that's maybe really torn by the type of father he's been and or not been. And there you are in the hospital, and he's vulnerable and maybe something that you hadn't observed that about him before. Yeah, my father's a big man. I'm only like 5'9". He's significantly larger than me, and I just remember as a child holding on to his arms and him lifting me up and such. Uh-huh. Um, so his physicality means so much and meant so much to him. And so to seem, you know without his legs, to see him quote-unquote old is, you know, like with anybody, that's a lot. But especially with him, it matters. So my dad, like with other poems like Little Fires Left by Travelers, um, my dad, I've kind of uh, made him a myth in my head, made mm-hmm. him bigger than life, because he always is. And his role in our community was the same way. You know, there was a social media meme on Facebook before I retired from Facebook that was like, I'm so Anderson. And so the users would say they're so Anderson because they remember certain details of Anderson, Indiana. And one of the I'm so Anderson <laughs> quotes was remembering my dad being a drug dealer in the community and such. I'm so Anderson. I remember when Big Doug did X from back in the day. And that's how woven he is in the community. So to see a man who has that kind of stature be, you know, in a bed getting his blood clean like that that vulnerable um, is a lot. And, you know, Toni Morrison talks about tough love and how, you know, good art can help you to participate and fall to tough love. And that's how I think my relationship with my father is tough love, the kind of love that you keep on working with. And I guess all love is like a process. So it's, it's a process that I do and that I have to work on and attend to. Um, just like anything else. And so I think this poem is me becoming more willing and giving and open toward giving that kind of attention. Right. I wanted to kind of put this more in in a context also by bringing in this other poem as well, and we could talk a little bit more about it. But um, the one called I'll Leave Your Ass Here. I'll Leave Your Ass Here. No, you won't, boy. His steps, slow motion trail behind me, learning to walk again. Two new prosthetic legs. Six months ago, he was all flatline and moan. I wasn't there, didn't go to the hospital, said I was too busy, was told about him coding three times in one night. I tell him, falling's not an option, Dad. His 250 pounds too much. He'll always be more than me. Dougie, you ain't never lied. He's lying, always does, does so much he doesn't even know it. Once, we were walking. Daddy, why the moon keep following me, I ask, rushing to catch up. Because you're the only person who matters in the world. If you're just tuned in, this is host Lois B. Jones. We're at Poets Cafe, and I'm here with our guest, Douglas Manuel. We're talking about 
his wonderful book, Testify, out on Red Hen Press. This poem moved me so much because I thought about the layers of the lying and how, as a boy, do we believe that? Do we know it's a lie? How does that seem later when he says that you're the only person mattering in the world? That's a beautiful line, by the way. You know, Daddy, why does the moon keep following me? I asked rushing to catch up because you're the only person who matters in the world. Wow. Is that a truth? And can you keep that truth, you know? I think that's true for him. I think that's a truth that I hope to believe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because of his history mm-hmm. and his dealings with drugs. And so one has to separate the parent somehow from these actions that are not really the true self, if that makes sense. I think it's a truth that both of us need to believe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's the way, you know, big meta narratives go, right? Like, I think this is beyond fact and object kind of truth. I think this has to be a story that him and I can tell each other so that we can work in the process of tough love. Yeah. You know? But it, it, it's just something I remember often walking with him. And we took many night strolls and many strolls in general, things that I remember from my youth and some of the beautiful times. And he would always say those kind of things. I think the biggest reasons that I'm a poet is because of his uh, love for language and the kind of ways that his turns of phrases, I, I think, often throughout the text. Um, I use his words directly. He just has uh, so many turns of phrases that always shock and surprise. Uh, right. And so I think... In a way, you know, he he opened me up to the possibilities of language, and that's something I'll be in debt to him forever for as well. And did he come to appreciate your writing? Oh, yeah, no, my dad loves this book. Yeah, 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 no, um, that's one of my biggest fears about the project in general. I think I've written an essay about that before, is the people that think like we have like this awful relationship or he doesn't read to work. But no, he's my biggest fan and cheerleader. He tells everybody very <laughs> quickly about what I do inside. Again, it's a work in progress. We fight a lot. And, uh, you know, we have a, a more platonic kind of relationship instead of kind of the, the usual power dynamics of a father and son. Sure. But that's just from his absence and such. We work at it. Your mom died when you were just eight. Mm-hmm. And so that was obviously a huge loss in your life. And then you had father struggling with his issues then. And yet you came out of this focusing on your doctorate now. How were you able to move beyond your history? Luck and love. I don't think anybody, quote unquote, makes it whatever one wants to define that to be, I guess, achieve some kind of level of social mobility from where they are from without, you know, some love and some backing. Mm -hmm. You know, my auntie, my aunt vet, as I say in the gratitude page at the back, really made my life to where I didn't know how little we were doing so much with. From a whole choir of aunties in the community to my godparents as well. Like I say in the book, like calling them, you know, my fairy white godparents, they also helped a lot with things. And that's what leads me to these ideas of doubleness as far as embracing both black and white side. Because there's no way I can turn my back on that. Um, You know, Du Bois says something about the soul of black folk. uh, The African-American says it can't turn the back on their Americanness or Europeanness as well. So I think all that comes in the place play with me as well because of feeling in debt, because of how big of a role, you know, me being in Catholic school saved me a lot too, you know, so many uh, elementary school teachers, like I remember like Mrs. Uh, Hummel and Miss uh, Welding and Mrs. Wetmore and so many people who would work with me with reading, who showed me poems, you know, early on, just so many things like that, I think. 
everybody who pays attention to, you know, children and education mm-hmm. and, and all those people did a lot. And then sports as well, you know, like many um, black men, sports keeps you out of trouble. You know, you ain't in the streets if you're playing basketball somewhere or as if you're at a track meet or something. So between strong academics from good old St. Mary's to mm-hmm. playing sports all the time and a lot of love and luck. Are you actually teaching now? Do you have students? Uh, yeah, yeah. I have two sections for uh, introduction to poetry class, like at USC. So I have two sections of them. Okay. So I was reading something on the Butler MFA site mm-hmm. that you'd written. You said, I care about talking to you. I care about talking to me. I care about words, oh, etc. Yeah. yeah. No matter how imprecise they are when it comes to clothing our thoughts and feelings, that's why I try and I want you to care too. So I keep trying, hoping that something I write means something to you hoping to meet you somewhere, shake your hand, and see that look in your eyes that only connection gives, hoping that you hear my prayers and that hopefully they were never mine at all, but instead they were yours too, that they were ours. Mm. What a fantastic and all-encompassing mission for poetry to have. I like it so much because it allows for different types of voices. It is not focused on a particular type of pedigree or voice. Uh, I read an interesting article recently about a woman who was speaking about feeling that she had to teach poetry to a white audience uh, rather than being able to take in all the aspects of her and herself and her culture, that her MFA was geared toward that voice. And how that statement to me just is more of a direct response to what we want to feel in poetry. One of my big things, just for my own sanity and just for a mode of how to exist in the world, is thinking of this, that there's enough room for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the thing that's so incredible about American poetry, uh, you know, there's all these debates about can poetry matter and poetry doesn't matter and it's this you know isolated academic endeavor or it's you know we only see its manifestation in songwriting and hip-hop all those kind of arguments and I think my worldview is not to kind of get caught up in those kind of things Mm -hmm. at all I think life necessitates poetry I think poetry a matter always because our subjective inner feelings and workings and reactions and the stories we tell ourselves will always matter I think that people will always be trying to express those subjective feelings, and I think each sliver of those expressions matter. I'm paraphrasing lots of things that people way smarter than me have said, but I feel, though, you know, the world is hardly ever worse off because somebody put a new poem into the world. <laughs> Let's um, hope not. Yeah, again, yeah. hardly ever. Again, you know, I'm very sure that I can make an argument about some kind of racist, fascist xenophobic, homophobic poem that's created that's problematic. But for the most part, you know, and then maybe even that wouldn't be problematic. It started a dialogue that we can react or resist against a narrative that we can talk to. So all that's to say is, you know, I care about our utterances and how we utter them to each other. And I think that poetry, to me, the best way that you can walk it up to a person metaphorically and be able to be like, ooh, let me take a look inside there to see how it's going on for you. I know how it's <laughs> going on for me over here, but I think it's still the best vehicle for that. It's why, you know, I still go back to the confessional poet, writers who are just willing to give themselves. I think people will always care about that. So it doesn't matter if you're a poet of indeterminacy or a poet who's not trying to, you know, 
mean anything and is more interested in the velocity of thought and the sense of sound and other kind of postmodern notions like that, or just like the way language fails us. It doesn't matter. I think there's enough for all those utterance. There's enough. I don't have to write that way. I don't have to teach those poems. Mm -hmm. And people don't have to teach poems that I write or that I read. But all this is still part of this kind of song that is America, you know. Mm -hmm. We're going to yoke it all the way back to Whitman, I suppose, or even yoke it back to all the poems that have ever been written. It's all like kind of dropping a, a drop of water into that big ocean. So, What do you think about being allowed to express those different voices uh, within ourselves as a body of work? I think it's just different approaches towards a telling or mm -hmm. towards forming the sound or forming or kind of orchestrating the poem. And so I use whatever works. I don't like to, you know, say I'm post-confessional or say that, you know, right. I'm a language poet or say that I'm uh, this or say that. I'm for doing whatever I need to make that poem work. And I think each poem demands its own craft and its own kind of um, scaffolding. And so I'm willing and I think uh, to embrace all of them. That's the really awesome thing about the PhD program is you mm -hmm. get exposed to so many different ways to make a poem enact meaning or not enact meaning, I suppose. Both are available. And so, you know, with more and more exposure, I wanted to try different things. You know, a lot um, is seen like after you write so many narrative poems or after you write so many tight lyrics or, you know, you do a, a list poem, like you want to see what else you can do as well, you know. And I think that's also kind of one of the challenges of being an artist is what else am I capable of? And what do I need to make this poem get close to the emotional tenor that I'm trying to color? And that takes lots of approaches. And I, I try to read as widely as possible so I can know all the ways to to make. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, well, that's evident in your in your work. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I really hope so. And, and, I, and I hope to, you know, keep on changing. You know, I don't want to write Testify Again. Right. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I could. Of course, there's the argument that, you know, all the works would just be testify to, testify three, testify, you know, everybody's, you know, writing leaves of grass over and over again. Uh, goodness, Whitman's coming <laughs> to my psyche too much these days. Okay. But yeah, so that's why I think there's so many different approaches. And in my pedagogy as well, I want to expose because a poem doesn't have to do anything except, you know, make its meaning mm -hmm. and, it, and its way of expression. That's all I ask of a poem. And I try to meet a poem and my um, writing process on its own terms like that. Not saying I'm just going to sit down and write this poem about when my dad did this. <laughs> right. Or I'm just going to sit down and have that poem where I was at the cemetery and I saw all these little cool birds. Like I'm not going to write that poem, you know. I, I try to trust the writing process and hope that I can um, get something that matters. Yeah, I mean Rilke talks about poems having – to come from need, and one feels that need within the poem, and it testifies uh, or speaks to its authenticity and honesty. But then there's persona poems, you know, mm -hmm. and how do you inhabit those voices and make them your own and make that need present? Uh, those are all interesting questions that I've been thinking about lately. You know, Merwin talks about things like the act of listening 
is, you know, like kind of the first act of a poet. That sounds like butchering one of his quotations. But yeah, I, I believe in that. So like I've always listened again, like to like my dad's turns of phrases, family members turn of phrases. Um, you know, I'm from the first generation to have like hip hop their whole lives. So mm -hmm. this whole time I've been getting this dynamic, awesome rhyme schemes, metaphorical literary language thrown at me all the time from hip hop, you know. Um, so like just taking all that in and, you know, just always listening. I think two of the things, you know, there's so many ways to be a poet or to make meaning. But two of the ways is totally, totally listening, listening, listening and going from there. And then the other, I think, is like attention. I think um, one of the things poetry can do is make the world matter by paying attention to it. And so I guess I mm. could connect those ideas by making the world matter by listening to it and by paying attention, which are, of course, the same kind of things. But it seems like paying attention involves the, the physical look and like the gaze. So those kind of two things of being, I guess, in tune or attuned to the world and making it matter through that. And so those kind of go into my process. So when it comes to a persona poem, I want to hear it. Just how like when I come to a, say a, a quote unquote in quotes lyrical eye poem, I want to hear that eye. I also want to hear the eye of the persona poem, you know, and be loyal to that voice. And so again, you, you got to write. You got to write a lot and you got to make your date with your writing time and your process. And hopefully you you know, the muse or whatever it is that's up there, you can grab it down a couple times, whatever magic that becomes a poem. So just keep on listening and keep on jotting down, keep on paying attention and keep on jotting down. And every now and again, you know, you can grab one. Are you pretty disciplined as far as your own writing? When I'm good to myself. When I'm good <laughs> yeah. to myself. I'm a slow writer, always, always, yeah, always. Very slow and attentive with that. But as far as carving out the time, I'm a better person when I am. When it, when I'm off, when I'm off, it's because I'm because not. those poems are percolating in there. Yeah, no, they're an energy, and they need to be extracted in some way. No, uh, totally agree. Yeah, I mean, extracted sounds like a strong word, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Filtered out uh, so that they have a place for expression. Uh, that paying attention is also something that I admire about your work and. There's a particular poem that struck me called Heading Down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if you'd talk about that one for a minute and, and read it. If you just tuned in, this is host Lois P. Jones, and we're here with our guest, Douglas Manuel, and we're talking about Testify and all things that have to do with the art and the act of poetry. Heading Down's become... A poem that I read a lot that's become one of the the Doug poems, if you will, Doug Manuel poems. This is the Midwest. Our scars of race <laughs> are still very deep as well as they are in the South and the Midwest. This is me kind of seeing how porous in our minds we think that, you know, those kind of acts are um, kind of restricted to the South. You know, Malcolm X has that great quote that anywhere below Canada is the South in America. Um, so I think about that in the context of this poem. But at the same time, you know, it kind of problematizes and shows how porous those kind of borders are. Because, you know, in Indiana, you can be um, in southern Indiana and suddenly feel very much so like you're in the south out of nowhere. Or you're feeling very much so um, in like a city and feeling like that you were far away from that. Then very quickly you can be kind of snapped into a world that, you know, many of us kind of forgot exists during the Obama administration. Many of us, you know, were kind of lulled to sleep and felt kind of safe. And this was festering the whole time. And I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of that festering did pop over. But to many of us, you know, right. all these all these things were always there. 
always and already, you know. And just to the point of Malcolm, you know, it wasn't until he'd done his pilgrimage and went to Mecca mm-hmm. that he could see that yeah. not all white men felt the way mm-hmm. he had been treated, you know. His encounters with white men changed mm-hmm. after that. I mean, I think that's interesting for any race yeah, no, to, to get out of that insular aspect, mm-hmm. especially in the United States. Yeah, mm-hmm. times like that. I mean, that's why it's so awesome, like some of the stuff that Baldwin says about him, you know, because it's easy to just think that one's crazy for thinking that extreme of a view. But, you know, Baldwin points out that to many African-Americans at the time, they hadn't met a white person who wasn't, you know, right. <laughs> a draconian, racist, um, all kind of whatever kind of terms we want to throw at it. So, you know, it made sense. So they get that kind of exposure, you know, uh, and then change one's mind. It's one of the reasons to always respect and look up the Malcolm X and why his death is such a tragedy in itself as well. and But that's the kind of thing, you know, Malcolm X was freely called people Uncle Toms in his day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's another one of the ones, you know, James Baldwin even talks about almost kind of feeling, he doesn't, I think, say Thomas directly, but feeling very insecure when he gave a speech in front of Malcolm X. Oh, <laughs> um, interesting. Um, and, you know, there's that great moment in the fire next time when, Elijah Muhammad attempts to give James Baldwin his Muslim name, and James Baldwin refuses it. I actually talk about that in um, uh, Mean the Boondocks, uh, her South Park poem. Talk mm-hmm. about that kind of moment. But all that's to say is this uh, poem's about a reminder of really how deep the wounds of race are in this country, and me, that kind of truth being thrown in my face. Heading down. We shouldn't raise mixed babies in the South, Kay says. As I drive up the crest of another hill on our way into Kentucky. The South, where humidity leaves a sweat mustache, where a truck with a Confederate flag painted on the back windshield skitters in front of us. In its bed, avoiding our eyes, a boy with blonde hair split down the middle, like a Bible left open to the Book of Psalms. His shirtless, sunlit skin drapes a thin coat for his bones, his clavicles sharp. I want to know who's driving this raggedy truck. I want the boy to look at us. I want to spray paint a black fist over that flag. I want the truck to find its way into the ravine. I want to. Stepping on the gas, I passed a truck. Kay and I turn our heads. The boy smiles and waves. The man driving doesn't turn his head, keeps his eyes on the road. Kay turns red as he draws her fingers into fists. And with nothing left to do, I stare at the whites of her eyes. Hmm. That's so powerful. Have you brought in all the different layers, um, the Confederate flag, the young boy who, he's waving. I mean, he hasn't really been inducted <laughs> into right. that type of thinking mm-hmm. yet. I mean, and maybe in subtle ways mm-hmm. because he's growing up around it. But And then the man who's driving is not even looking at you as you pass. And I love just the language, the way he's described, split down the middle like a Bible left open to the book of Psalms. Oh, this is just beautiful. Um, beautiful language. 
And I think also of how, again, we're destroying these symbols of oppression. On the one hand, you know, uh, the Confederate flag symbolizes slavery and oppression. On the other, some say it's a symbol of Southern heritage. But, of course, that heritage is layered with oppression, you know. And so it's very complicated when I think about how we're going to be able to, years down the road, separate out those threads so that people can see the truth. It's interesting that you use the, the word the truth right then, you know, um, thinking about, you know, alternative facts, thinking about um, fake news, thinking about those kind of, you know, so long in our education and higher levels we've been talking about trying to avoid falling towards the problems of being, you know, relativism. Things still have to be true, you know. And so what I try to talk about is that there are stories that we can have, and those matter more than what is, like, factually true. So I think we just got to learn to be able to hold the stories in our head and then take a step forward and say that it's okay for those stories to be aligned. We're having a problem of trying to hierarchize of, like, what story Mm -hmm. matters more. And... You know, it is time for the attention to be paid to the other narratives. But then if you've been told a story that's made your life matter over and over again, like Baldwin talks about, nobody gives up power willingly. And so to totally have to really let go of a narrative of the South rising again, or this is one of the times... My great-grandfather served in the Mm -hmm. war and was a hero. Yeah, and, you know, he was fighting just for his people and his land. If one believes that, it's hard to reckon with that. To know if you've built yourself based on those stories, it's hard to walk away from that. But at the same time, I think we just have to hope that we can have conversations where people can believe that that can be one story of America, but there's another too. (laughs) And hopefully, like my position with poetry and aesthetics, as far as approaches, that we can hope to know that there's enough room for more than one narrative in America and that we should embrace multiple ones of them. But I think, you know, the times have gotten so dire to where we almost do have to say that certain narratives are truer than others. One of the ways is just to be really honest about these kind of things. Uh, And the honesty that this poem tries to convey is that one can be in an interracial relationship and want to spray paint a black fist over a Confederate flag and be mad at uh, a person who has a Confederate flag on their car, and then also love their white partner more than anything in the world, but also at that moment feel almost angry at their white partner as well. All those things can just happen, and it's going to be that messy all the time. Real life is that messy, and I don't know how. And it is that messy. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. But I don't know how to teach people to be okay with that kind of, <laughs> uh, uh, I guess, to use the uh, old term negative capability, you know. Like, I don't know how to make people uh, comfortable with that. But I think those are the kind of truths that we're going to have to start grappling with if we're going to be okay with things, you know, uh, that kind of nuance. I and, think it's incumbent upon each generation to filter through those stories mm-hmm. and to be able to separate out that love that they have for the individual Mm -hmm. and the experiential. Mm -hmm. Because you can love your grandfather and the fact that they fought for the family close and still also know that slavery was one of the ugliest truths of human history. It just seems like it's so frustrating to me that the people have trouble understanding that kind of nuance. Because on the other side, you know, as black people, we... uh, 
I hate any kind of gesture to speak for black people. I hate that kind of even rhetoric. But I think that people of color have to rationalize and understand dominant narratives way more than people who are of the dominant <laughs> class have to understand yeah. them. And I think that that's one it's of true. the huge problems is that that kind of lack of awareness. Just think for a second that why your family was fighting for their land rights and their heritage, that the land that they were working was worked by somebody else and was owned by another group of people. Um, yeah. Can we just have those kind of moments of awareness? And there are all these n narratives existing. I mean, just to move the subject slightly to another topic, when you look at the narrative of war mm -hmm. and how there's so much pride mm -hmm. in the legacy of soldiering and what that means mm -hmm. to an individual. The oldest lie, right? <laughs> the oldest lie. Yeah, and yet it continues on. Uh, yeah, what's you know. that World War One poet, that English war what uh, do say... Uh, uh, decorum mm -hmm. yeah that poem I think it's uh, Owens maybe but yeah talking about the oldest lies about the glory of war I think he then like goes on to describe them on the front and gas mustard gas falling on they're watching one of his comrades die in the mustard gas and then talks about war uh, that it's the sweetest thing to die for one one's country I can't remember the name of that <laughs> poem exactly but yeah. yeah that kind of narratives fighting that kind of narratives that's what you're I think right. talking about as well it's all I know is that, you know, we've come a long way. Yeah. And I think that, you know, right now, even having moments of these kind of conversations happening are, are small steps. Or to go all the way back, people have this kind of conversation and then go do poetry workshops and then go say this, you know, to a little kid who is in a Catholic school who happens to be listening. Mm -hmm. And then maybe they write a book or maybe they go, you know, to USC for a Ph.D. later. Those kind of things are the kind of things that keep me going, even though as we speak with the government shutdown and <laughs> with the horrible narratives around DACA and such all happening, those are the kind of things that keep me going and keep me writing poems. I'm going to teach at some high schools and teach at, you know, USC and hopefully talk about things that shed light on narratives that are getting ignored. And why the conversation must continue. You ain't lying one bit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Our show's winding down, and I wonder if you could take us out with one of my favorite poems in the book. It's called Lost Side of Loss. I don't read this one that often. I don't know if I've read this publicly at all, actually. So, Lost Side of Loss. That rattling animal, the self you left inside your mother. Take your eyes away from the soil. Look at the birds worrying the trees. Act as if someone is rubbing your head, whispering without face, without tongue. There's a hole in your pocket, a gold frame around her photo. In suits, men carry away her casket, her voice. Your eyelids. This is host Lois P. Jones, and our guest has been Douglas Manuel. Thanks to our inimitable chef, Marlena Bond. Look for us on the Poets Cafe fan page on Facebook. You've been listening to Poets Cafe on Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond.